Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. The Chicago teachers' strike is underway today. Schools are open, so kids have a place to go. But classes have been canceled, and around 32,000 teachers and support staff are walking the picket line. It's unclear when the strike will end. Our WBEZ education reporters have been at the picket lines this morning. Adriana Cardona-Magigad spoke with Kyle Decker, a special education classroom assistant at Curie High School on the southwest side. He explained some of the issues driving the strike. big part of it is, you know, better pay, a recognition primarily, and getting our students the supports that they need. You know, there's, there's some schools that have over 2,000 kids and one social worker, and that's not right. We're joined now by WBEZ's Kate Grossman. Kate, is this generally what teachers are saying about why they're on strike today? Yeah, for sure. And so Kyle, who's out there this who's out there this morning, he's a support staff. So you know, we have both the teachers and the support staff, and they're all united around pay. Although that really isn't the primary issue. The, the big issue for for all of them, but teachers in particular, is trying to improve the conditions in schools so that they feel like. Kids can be better supported and they can do their job better. And remind us some of the specific demands CTU is making. Well, the two biggest sticking points are around staffing. So the teachers union wants a huge increase in the number of nurses, social workers, counselors, special ed case managers, kind of all the what we call wraparound, what they call wraparound services. Because right now, as you heard Kyle say, you know, school can have one social worker for 2,000 kids. And, you know, everybody agrees that's a bad idea. But the teachers union have been advocating for this for a really long time to increase to have at least one social worker in every school and nurse in every school. And they feel like this is their moment to get that done. It's uh, another big issue is class size. Right now, there are only advisory guidelines about class size, class sizes, and they're pretty high, like 28, 31 kids per class in the upper grades. The teachers union wants to lower them pretty substantially, like 24, really substantially, and um, make them enforceable, so not just advisory. Now, CPS and CTU were at the negotiation table yesterday. This obviously didn't lead to a deal, hence a strike today. (laughs) Give us a quick debrief on what happened yesterday. Well, there actually wasn't a lot of negotiating that went on yesterday. Um, you know, essentially Tuesday night, the union said they were going to strike. They recommended to their elected delegates that they move forward with a strike. And so a lot of yesterday was sort of <laughs> kind of getting ready for a strike. But it sounds like both sides agree in the last week or so, the pace has picked up in negotiations, that they're finally talking about these two issues that I just discussed about class size and staffing, but um, certainly not enough to get a deal. I mean, the teachers union, you know, they're really going for broke here, and they, they, they want all their demands met. And the mayor has actually come quite a distance on this. Initially, um, the school system and the mayor said they would not put any kind of written commitments in the contract about more nurses and social workers and the like. And now they say they are willing to do it, but they have not come to terms on, on what that language would be. Mayor Lightfoot is out at a community site that's hosting kids today on the west side. Let's listen. 
We certainly believe that we can get a deal done. We could get a deal done today. If, if there is a, a seriousness, a purpose, and a willingness on the other side, we can get a deal done today. Does that mean, Kate, that really it's, it's up to CTU to move on their position? Uh, well, that's certainly what Mayor Lightfoot is saying. She's had a couple of press conferences over the last few days and has made the point repeatedly that she feels that the city has bent at every, every turn to do what the CTU wants, um, that they've made 80 counterproposals uh, to meet demands by the teachers' union. Um, now, what the teachers' union says is that a lot of the things that the city is offering are paltry. You know, like they an, an initial offer was for the classroom overcrowding that they would give uh, an extra million dollars a year to deal with overcrowding. And the union called that insulting. You know, a million dollars is a, a couple, you know, it's a small number of teachers to relieve overcrowding in the school system with 300,000 kids in the district schools. So they got to find some way to meet in the middle. I mean, as I said before, the teachers union is very strident and see this as their moment to get what they call the schools we deserve. And the mayor is saying, you know, we've come a long way, but I have to be fiscally responsible. I can't spend every penny we have. The school system has been previously on the brink of insolvency, and we're finally now at a point where we're a little more stable. She said, I have to be a good fiscal steward. I can't go overboard. It, it's it's hard to see exactly where they're going to meet in the middle, to be honest. Well, and fiscal solvency is something that always comes in into the conversation when we're talking about CPS. And just describe a little bit about the financial picture for CPS right now and what's happening. As anyone who's listening has been aware, the last you know ten years has sort of been lurching from one budget crisis to another, and that all started to change uh, in 2017 when the state changed its funding formula and finally started funneling um, more money to Chicago public schools and to needy school districts around the state. And that has really made a big difference for CPS, the sort of crisis, like, do we have enough cash to run the school system today is over. We're not seeing big budget cuts, mid-year budget cuts that we were seeing before. That's, so there is an influx of money, um, which is super helpful, of course. Um, the problem is that there's a ton of debt you know, billions of dollars of debt that the school system has accumulated over the years. And you got to pay that debt service every month. And so um, so the credit card bill is very large. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, the the school system has money to do some new things, but it it is not a rich school system by any means. Cities are where most people live, both in the U.S. and now globally. And as we grapple with the effects of climate change, the good news is that carbon output per capita is lower in U.S. cities like Chicago when compared with other parts of the country. That's because of the way our cities and our neighborhoods are built and operate. Many little-known efforts in Chicago's neighborhoods help create a more sustainable way of life. With us to talk about sustainability in our neighborhoods is Karen Weigert, Vice President at Slipstream, a Chicago-based energy innovation non Profit. She served as the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Chicago under former Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And we're also excited that Karen is now part of the Reset team. She'll join us every other week as a regular contributor on sustainability. Karen, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So when we hear policy discussions about helping the environment and being more sustainable, we're not usually talking about it at the neighborhood level. Why not? No, it's interesting that conversations often are very big picture because these challenges can feel very big picture. But when we talk about solutions, you feel them day to day. And so the conversation might be about carbon, 
But day to day, you might be living in a house that's more comfortable, that's actually using less energy. So we've got to connect those big picture conversations so that we see what's happening on the ground, but recognize it's a part of a big transformation that's happening in our city, in our country, and globally. And talk about how those that those efforts at the neighborhood level bubble up and have a greater impact on the city as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting, that idea of us in Chicago having a lower carbon footprint than people who don't have the opportunity to live in Chicago. But we have lots of places that are improving their carbon footprint. But how we got there? We get there because there's this great combination of transportation and buildings. We have options to walk, bike, take transit, and we live in homes often that share walls that actually might be using less energy because of the smaller footprint or because of that sharing of resources. And so the day-to-day of how you move around and where you are ends up having a lower carbon footprint. And that's added to a lot of other things that we do day to day. I want to jump into what's happening on the neighborhood level. But let's talk a little bit again about policy and how the city of Chicago prioritizes this. A little over eight years ago, the city disbanded its Department of Environment, which made a lot of people question the city's commitment to sustainability. You were the chief sustainability officer at the time. So how does this issue fit into the city's priorities overall? It's a really important issue, and I think it's fit for Chicago for many years, certainly under different organizational structures, as you mentioned, but it fits because it makes day-to-day life better, and it fits because it can often save money. And so to be specific about that, it fits because we're talking about spending less money to heat, cool, and operate our buildings. It fits because that transit system, those trains, they're moving people in many, many neighborhoods. It's about equity, but those trains are also all electric, so it's also about air quality. So you see multiple benefits in the way people live day to day, aggregating up to less carbon, less emissions locally in terms of air pollution. And then when it's done and it's fully implemented, you actually have more equity throughout the city. So I think it can fit in multiple elements. So I want you to tell us about some of the things we see happening on the neighborhood level. You see things that people don't even notice anymore that used to be so new, things like a divvy bike. That used to be unheard of, and now you see it everywhere. What you also see in neighborhoods are some of the changes like more trees or more plants. They're actually capturing stormwater and they're providing shade, but they're often just a wonderful amenity. And then you're actually seeing organizations themselves drive local leadership. So some of this is infrastructure, some of it's programs, some of it's policy. But you have organizations throughout the city. You have places like the New Green Living Room in West Woodlawn that is a new community gathering place that's really focused on the sustainability transformation. So that's an example of everything from policies to programs to infrastructure We can see things day to day once we recognize they're adding up to this bigger picture. And that has a bigger picture about decarbonizing our economy and creating equity throughout our city. When we see those innovations in neighborhoods, are they happening, to use the phrase bottom up, or are they happening from the top down? I think they're both, and they have to be both. So much of what happens at the city level, we'll look at those larger questions. How does the train system work? Where are the bus lines? Can we make those buses electric? Those are big transitions that will impact throughout Chicago. But in local neighborhoods, that's where you see the one building that is now becoming more efficient. You actually see the community garden that is serving residents who can walk there. You see the park or the playground that is refurbished, that is now creating an outdoor place for people to gather. And so a lot of that is driven by local residents making choices in their day-to-day about making their neighborhood better. And interestingly, when the neighborhoods get better, it's often sustainability that's a part of that story. When we look at neighborhoods that are more active than others in that space, what are some of the barriers that may prevent a neighborhood from actually taking some of these steps? 
Yeah, it's an interesting mix because you can take steps because you see the upside. And so there's something that you're shooting for. You might want to have your neighborhood be well known for having an incredible local food or having incredible, beautiful parks and outdoor spaces. It might be that your neighborhood is suffering tremendously from air quality. And so we have people coming at this from different scenarios. And when we think about the challenges, if you don't have a train line in your neighborhood, it's very hard to take advantage of that walkability to the train line. So you have to think about that next connection. If you have a neighborhood where air quality is very poor, that's probably the inactivating factor, and that's going to galvanize people. So there's barriers in terms of what's available, and then there's also different opportunities in terms of what's really needed locally. So we may be one city and one large metropolitan area, and sustainability is a part of all of those stories, but it's felt very differently because of the way the city is built. I'm always curious when we look globally, how what happens at this micro level can bubble up and actually affect policy at the city, state, or national level? Mm-hmm. It adds up in terms of the environmental impact, but then it adds up in terms of what people running for office or in office hear about. And so you have change when you have those sorts of results where there's a different person in office who may prioritize these issues differently. When you have businesses that are actually able to drive economic return by being sustainable and and they can be supported because people are choosing green energy or because people are choosing local food or because it's a cost reduction and they're taking packaging out and it's saving money. But it aggregates up when you get those big picture changes. But day to day, we can experience them even as the aggregation is happening. In other words, people benefit today. And as the systems change, you benefit tomorrow. Whenever we talk about sustainability I get questions from people, what am I supposed to do as an individual, as someone in the neighborhood? Is it enough that I recycle or that I compost? What's your advice to people who are just trying to figure out what's a reasonable step to take that's actually going to have an impact? Yeah, first of all, it's a great question. And there are ways to think about it. The first one is do something that you can control, that you can do regularly. If for some people it's recycling, and for some people it might be energy in their home, for some people it might be transportation, you can look at the math behind it. You know, the fastest growing source of emissions, the one that actually is the largest nationally, is actually now transportation. But if you're in the city of Chicago, that's number two. Number one is actually heating, cooling, and operating buildings. So if you're here, take a shot at what you can do to use energy in that building. And then think about that broader question. The change happens when it's aggregated. So bring your neighbor in. Bring your cousin in. Find a way to have more people be a part of that solution that you're personally working to implement. That's Karen Weigert, vice president at the Chicago-based energy innovation nonprofit Slipstream, and she's Reset Sustainability contributor. Karen, thanks for joining us. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Some other news you should know. Yesterday, Alderman passed a version of Mayor Lightfoot's plan to create seven zones where recreational weed can be sold in the city. And Maurice Cox was confirmed as the new head of Chicago's Department of Planning and Development. Cox comes from Detroit, where he worked to revitalize disinvested neighborhoods. And the Chicago Police Board is meeting tonight. They'll announce whether Robert Riamo will be fired. He's the officer who shot and killed 19-year-old Quintonio Legreer and Legreer's 55-year-old neighbor, Betty Jones. It happened in 2015, while Riamo was responding to a domestic disturbance call. And that's it for today's Reset. Come back tomorrow for what will surely be a very busy Friday News Roundup. And keep it tuned to WBEZ for the latest on the Chicago teacher strike. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker 
and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.